Hi, and welcome to Planet Watch, big solutions to Earth-sized problems. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. And I'm Joe Jordan. And today on the program, what Native American cultures can tell us about adapting to a changing climate and how coastal erosion may be threatening what we know about the past by washing away archaeological sites. Mike Newland is an archaeologist with the Anthropological Study Center at Sonoma State University in Santa Rosa. He's also past president of the Society for California Archaeology. We'll be joining him in just a moment. You can subscribe for free to our Planet Watch podcast by going to planetwatchradio.com. And if you want to get in touch with us or ask our guests a question, write by email to radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. But first, a short look at some top stories in science and environment this week. And as usual, we have our student interns reading the news about the future and uh, the planet. So we'll start out with Sanaya Laktawala and a story about microplastics. F fish in the Northwest Atlantic are carrying high levels of microplastics. A new study published in Frontiers in Marine Science found 73% of mesopelagic fish caught in the Northwest Atlantic had tiny plastic particles in their stomach, one of the highest levels globally. Typically living at depths of 600 to 4,000 feet, mesopelagic fish play a key role in the cycling of carbon and nutrients from the surface to the deep sea, a process known as biogeochemical cycling. This means that they could spread microplastic micro pollution through the marine ecosystem by carrying microplastics from the surface down to deeper waters, affecting deep sea organisms. These fish are also prey for fish eaten by humans, meaning that microplastics could indirectly contaminate our food supply through the transfer of microplastic toxins. Say, Sanaya, I had a question for you about that. You said mesopelagic fish. Now, I'm guessing, okay, pelagic basically means of the oceans, and meso, uh, I mean, I guess that means the mid-range, like the mid-range in the depths and or the geographic distribution. Can you tell us what meso, <laughs> it almost sounds like pa paleolithic or mesolithic fish or something, but mesopelagic, yeah. what does that mean? It means um, 600 to 4,000 feet in depth, which is actually supposed to be 200 to 1,000 meters, something okay. like that. Okay, all right, thanks. There's your answer to that one. And now we go to Maya Rodriguez with a story about how agriculture is actually accelerating some of the heating of our planet. New research from Europe shows that converting forests to agriculture is heating the planet. The European Commission's Joint Research Center has released a new study revealing how changes to vegetation over the last 15 years has contributed to global warming. The research team analyzed satellite data from the early 2000s in order to find a link between land alteration and surface energy balance. They found that modifying vegetation changes surface properties such as heat dis dissipation, water evaporation, and the amount of radiation reflected into space ultimately causing an increase in surface temperature. The analysis examined a wide range of vegetation, such as shrublands, grasslands, and wetlands, but researchers found that converting tropical evergreen forests to agricultural land had the strongest impact on raising temperatures. Scientists point out that in terms of greenhouse gases, modifying vegetation will have a long-term effect, but communities living near deforestation will experience rising temperatures immediately. Okay, thank you so much. And Tommy Martin has a story for you about a seed vault far in the frozen but not so frozen north that is now going under repairs. Yeah. The largest seed vault in the world, known as the Doomsday Vault, is getting a $13 million upgrade. About 800 miles from the North Pole on a small Norwegian island, the Svalbard Global Seed Vault has been collecting seed samples from all over the world, storing them at a chill negative 18 degrees Celsius. In late 2016, a thaw of permafrost allowed some water to leak into the vault entrance. The revamp will cover construction of a new concrete access tunnel, as well as a service building to house refrigerating units and other electrical equipment. With 900,000 unique seed samples inside the vault, it is meant to act as a backup to the world's gene bank in case of disasters, ranging from nuclear war to global warming. A decade ago, the vault cost Norway $9 million to build. So just in case, you know, you 
think Norwegians aren't thinking ahead. They are. There's something interesting and always strange about stories like that. You know, I always wonder, okay, so there's a giant catastrophe on Earth. Who's going to know where that vault is? <laughs> and if there's electricity powering the refrigeration, you know, I hope that we are thinking ahead and that's great and we're thinking about backup plans. But that one... You know, I always wonder, well, so who's going to be left to find it? And, you know, they're going to dig holes all over the Arctic or that <laughs> island in Svalbard to find that little vault. I hope there's a lot of maps being left around also in other places so you can find it again. And is the soil that we would then plant those seeds in going to be radioactive or <laughs> what's going to be the story? It's like then? an arc, you know, thought that, that people often think of, well, if we keep these species alive long enough to, for global warming to end, we can bring them back like the polar bear <laughs> Why don't we just prevent these things from happening? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, well, uh, speaking of bad things, I've got a trio of absolutely horrible stories for Thanks, you all. But Joe. just little <laughs> short. I'll keep them short, mercifully. But first, we have to do a fun little mental lightning quiz for our listeners. Uh, Tommy said the temperature of that vault is minus 18 degrees centigrade or Celsius. So, okay, what is that in our good old familiar Fahrenheit? I'll just give you two endpoints. <laughs> 32 degrees Fahrenheit is zero degrees Celsius. And minus 40, here's your interesting party fact, which I've said on this show before, minus 40 Celsius equals minus 40 Fahrenheit. <laughs> That's where the two are equal, minus 40. So Tommy said minus 18. So go look up the formula, figure it out. Hey, email us at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com and I'll Think of a little prize to give the first person who gives us the answer. Okay, you ready for the three horrible stories? I'm just going to paraphrase real quickly. Um, one of them, I'm just kicking the can down the road as our society keeps doing <laughs> on our big problems. Uh, last week I said I was going to report more this week on a horrible item about oxygen in the oceans. The very oxygen budget of the oceans being threatened by our human-caused global overheating. And I'm just going to remind you that, yes, there's something brewing that's bad there, but I'm going to give you more on that next week or and or after. The second item, just because it's the most trivial of the three, is that, well, okay, uh, you ready? The ski industry is probably headed to toast. Yes, I mean, it, it's going to be a long time scale, and, you know, they can make snow and stuff. Of course, that requires water. Um, but... Um, it's long been known now, climate models are showing and nature is actually bearing out the fact that the snows in the Sierra, our beloved California mountains, and other mountains around the world are declining at the high altitudes where you normally want to go skiing. This was predicted long ago and now it's actually coming true and it's going to get worse and the ski industry is getting hit to the tune of, you know, a billion dollars or more a year and that's only going to get worse. So some of the ski representatives are saying, well, we need to stop this. Okay, well, <laughs> great, thanks. We need help uh, from all quarters. The third one, the third one uh, is an item. This is the news and commentary section of our, of our show. This is pretty much pure commentary, but <laughs> it is news. Um, this is from Naomi Klein, a famous author who has written many great books, one of which was uh, the recent one was uh, This Changes Everything. And uh, here we go. Our, our listener, Michael McKay, who from time to time helps us out greatly, contributed this item. It's easier for us to imagine monkey-wrenching the Earth's very life support systems than it is to imagine changing capitalism. She did an interview on New Zealand Radio in 2014. You can get it on YouTube. Look that up. Here it goes. I'm just going to read what Michael has sent us that is stuff that Naomi said. Market mechanisms lock out the necessary action to meaningfully deal with climate change. How locked in we are to this market triumphalist moment that we just can't see our way out of the current system we have. We cannot get to zero emissions using a market mechanism. Now, I'm saying this because it's provocative, okay? I'm not sure I even agree with that, but we need to talk frankly about this stuff. We are so behind in dealing with emission cuts that it's reckless to leave it to the market alone. Climate will not be seen as a crisis until the elites are affected. We need a full-throated ideological debate over how we want to govern our society. 
So, okay, put that in your pipe and smoke it, folks. We'll talk more la later about all that. Well, and following on, and we, our, our guest is in the wings, so we're going to bring him on just a moment. Following on to your comment about, you know, we won't be dealing with climate change until the elites are affected, your prior story about skiing being affected, you know, skiing is, is a fairly expensive sport, if you haven't noticed. It costs several hundred dollars a day just to go up on a lift or two. So um, when the people who ski start to notice their snow is not going to be there except artificial snow, then there you go. Um, or we don't even have Winter Olympics anymore. I mean, that's a ways off, I think. But uh, Let's not wait till then. <coughs> yeah. All right, I'm going to introduce our guest who is kind enough to join us today on Planet Watch. Mike Newland is an archaeologist with the Anthropological Studies Center at Sonoma State University in Santa Rosa, and he's past president of the Society for California Archaeology. He's going to talk today about a couple of things he's involved with. Um, one was the subject of a recent National Public Radio story about the Santa Rosa fires and their aftermath. And you might wonder, how is that connected to Planet Watch? Well, we have talked about the increasing danger uh, to all of us of increased wildflower fires because of drought. Um, in the aftermath, many people uh, were looking for the remains of their loved ones, or maybe they had already had them in an urn, and then those ashes became mixed with the toxic ash of the rest of their house. Well, Mike Newland um, and another team of archaeologists brought in some forensic sniffing dogs to help people find their loved ones, and that was the subject of a recent NPR story. So I will just say welcome to Planet Watch, Mike Newland. Thank you. Can you guys hear me? Absolutely. Oh, excellent. Great. Thanks. Loud and Thanks clear. Thank you so much for having me. I should, I should clarify that uh, I'm, uh, I've actually left the Anthropological Studies Center and joined uh, Environmental Science Associates as a director for cultural resources. So I'm in a new shop right now. Okay. Uh, tell me how the field of archaeology, because we've had climate scientists on here and we've had, you know, all kinds of thinkers. Um, we never had an archaeologist. So tell us how, what's the, <laughs> yay, welcome. Planet Watch <laughs> first. The links from the past to the future. <laughs> tell us in your own right. words how uh, climate change and archaeology are connected for you. Well, um, uh, you know, humans have been... Uh, trying to uh, survive through climate shifts in the past with mixed success. And um, I, I was actually not really involved in climate change discussions until about 2012 when I started a uh, study for national parks on um, the effects of sea level rise and climate change at sites at a Point Reyes National Seashore. And it's in the process of doing the background research for that. I hadn't seen... Um, Al Gore's um, uh, work, or, or uh, uh, any of the any of the public uh, movies that have been out on it, I had I don't have TV at the house. I mean, I, I was pretty ignorant on it, and so I started wading in through the uh, the field data, a lot of the uh, field research reports, a lot of the scientific articles, and w was kind of blown away by it. And so it switched a lot of my focus to looking at climate change and how it, it's been addressed by people in the past. And um, California, in particular, has gone through some pretty serious climate shifts in the past. We, you know, that with with people here, the first one being that big Pleistocene Holocene shift, you know, ten to twelve thousand years ago. We had another one during the Middle Holocene that uh, is probably indicative of about what of what we're about to face. Uh, it was uh, uh, several thousand years of drought and uh, higher temperatures. And then we had uh, what's uh, called the medieval climatic anomaly, uh, which happened around uh, 1100 AD or so. Uh, so it's affected human populations. And, um, you know, archaeologists have kind of been sitting on this data and mulling it over. And it's, it's sort of time for us to uh, put our books down and come out and talk to the public. Um, and have some discussions about culture and climate change and human adaptation. Great. Well, and maybe we'll have those we today. So, you know, it's really interesting how climate change has caused a lot of people in different fields to, like you say, you know, put down their books and go, we got to talk directly to the public. So here's our your chance. What would you like Excellent. to say to um, our listeners about that? Well, I, you know, I think the, the number one thing I want to kind of get across is that we are uh, embarking on the greatest... Uh, and largest social experiment that we've ever done. Um, we've 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 never understood the 
reasons behind climate change while we were being subjected to them. We've never had within our means uh, to do anything about it. And we've never had the ability for all of us to communicate with each other almost instantaneously about how to solve these problems. So uh, our track record for survival on climate change is, is not great. Um, sometimes we've done well, sometimes we have, we have not. And as a species, I think we tend to double down on what we're already doing going into the climate change. And if, it's, if that's kind of productive, then that population dies out. Um, <clears throat> but we have this opportunity to sort of pre-adapt uh, the, the discussions of building resiliency and preparing for climate change, uh, I think, are really right on, the, uh, right on the money for us. If we can get through this, I think, and, you, know, you mentioned Naomi Klein earlier, I think her work is pretty compelling about the social uh, and, and environmental justice uh, actions that are going to need to take place in order for us to adapt for climate change. And I, I think we could have a much stronger, a much better society and a much better world uh, as a result. If we fail, uh, you know, we can look at a lot of different scenarios, and I'm sure you guys have over the years of climate, uh, worst-case scenarios for climate change, and a lot of them are, are not good. Yeah, and, not good and for us as a species. What can the past? You've you've done a lot of studying of past humans and also um, current traditional uh, Native American societies. Mm -hmm. What are you learning from them that might help us in that adaptation piece? Because clearly, you know, they've figured out things that we forgot how to do. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know. So uh, I, I've been working uh, with uh, a couple different Native American groups. I mean, one thing I think I should say, uh, you know, certainly I would encourage you guys to get some Native American scholars on the show to talk about their viewpoint. Um, it's specifically because I don't want to. I don't want to speak for them. I can speak about the observations I've made in talking with them. That's great. Uh, one one of the uh, w one of the things that it became apparent, apparent uh, very quickly was that climate change is a is a, a it's a metaphysical concern. It's a spiritual concern for a lot of the tribes, and how they respond to climate shift is something that uh, tribal council and tribal elders need to engage in. Is it the will of the creator that climate change happens, uh, or is it an act of man? If it's if it's the will of of the creator, then a lot of tribes, uh, their position is going to be to let it play out as it plays out. If it's an act of man, then their response is is much more aggressive, and their expectations of the federal government are going to be greater. I would like to point out that the water protectors really showed um, a very strong aggressive stance against the fossil fuel yes. company threatening their yes. water. So we've seen a pretty big coming together of many tribal societies around the Keystone Pipeline protest. Mm -hmm. So I would yes. say um, that the awareness, at least in that circle of people, um, is pretty high. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's... Um uh, it's a, it's in some ways it's sort of a cause and effect kind of thing. The, the, they're you know certainly concerned about the effect. Uh, there for the the water protectors of, of you know a ruptured pipeline. Um, I think that cause uh, is really it's kind of an important thing for us to mull over. I, I know that Al Gore in the past has said that he considered uh, the climate change argument a moral argument. That there's something, there's an intrinsic value in us having these discussions and trying to find the right way to go through. That's 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 fair for everybody. Yeah, I guess the, the phrase that comes to mind for me is uh, that we're going about the business of vandalizing the Earth's systems. Right. And right. Uh, you know what you said a, uh, a minute ago about is it the will of the Creator? It struck me that hey, not just uh, among Native Americans, for whom, by the way, you know, when you think of a rain dance, uh, that that immediately uh, kind of invokes images of Native Americans. But I mean, the Judeo-Christian so-called religion, uh, a lot of people fr from that realm where I came from, uh, I think, are into this whole thing of, hey, it's the will of the creator. Let's just let it happen the way it's meant to be. <laughs> so it's not just <laughs> it, Native Americans. I've also heard uh, people of faith background say that it's um, our duty as those who are, have been given stewardship to protect the creation. So um, really, yeah. you can banty around terminology 
Uh, it's right. really a question of whether you believe that you would like to leave a planet for future generations. That's more, to me, yeah. the moral story and other species besides us um, to survive through the next few generations or more. Right. And that's kind of what I wanted to ask you about is what did you learn? You said you were working with a native tribe up in Northern California about right. food webs and their fisheries. Yeah. Could you tell a story about how you got interested in that topic and what you, what sure. you learned out of that? In a short <laughs> story or two. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'll try to do the I'll try to do the short version of it. Uh, at Northern National Parks pilot project, uh, I was working with uh, Tolua Deni and uh, Elk Valley Rancheria, which are two Tolua tribes up in the northwestern part of the state. And it was sort of a collaboration between uh, myself, the two tribes, uh, Sonoma State University, where I was at, and and the National Park Service. And I was looking at. What were going to be the impacts of climate change on the tribes, the the natural resources that contributed to their cultural heritage? So I dug through a lot of the old ethnographic literature uh, from the early 1900s, and then uh, spent some time uh, in in interviews with tribal elders and and reading through and listening to, to interviews that the tribe had done with elders. Well, the changes over the past 50 years that the elders had seen in their natural environment. And it was fascinating. Um, the, the different habitat shifts, the, the, the consistency of the sand at the beaches, how that had changed, uh, because that affects the uh, smelt spawning. Um, and smelt is a, a very important uh, fish for the Toa. It's sort of a small sardini kind of guy that runs along the shoreline in the summertime and spawns. And as I had gone through the material, I realized that so much of the uh, Tolua traditional practices were really tied with smelt fishing that I sat down and tried to map out everything that was connected to it. And it turned out to be huge. Um, the, the, you know, the, I mentioned the sand particle size of the beaches, and you need the shorebirds to show you where on the beaches the, the uh, smelt are spawning. And the current blossom uh, bloom tells you when smelt season starts. You need basketry material, which means you need basketry tools, which are bone tools, usually from deer and elk. Uh, you have to, so that means you have to have hunting gear to go get those, uh, which requires obsidian, which means you need to trade for that because they don't have any obsidian locally there. And so it was a huge, it was a huge web. Right? And I had my nine-year-old daughter, uh, Katie, help me map it out because she's very good with the spatial stuff. And... Uh, <clears throat> I ran it back by through the Tolba folks to make sure I had double-checked and they added things to it. But the, the important takeaway for me from that was, was at the center of that web is ceremony. And ceremony governed everything. It governed when you, you fished for the smelt and when you collected the basketry materials. Uh, it governed uh, that trade relationship with uh, your neighbors to get the obsidian. And uh, so it was a really, uh, it was really powerful to see, uh, see that prominent role. It, it governed how the system worked. And uh, as I was putting that together and giving another a presentation in Marin County about it, um, I thought that, got to thinking about what it would look like if uh, we put an apple uh, in where the smelt was. And what does our web look like uh, for an apple? And you have to have the, you know, the grocery stores for most of us. Um, you've got the refrigeration. You've got the unionized and non-unionized labor. You've got the, uh, the agricultural fields, the, the trucking uh, system. Uh, you need your own job and your own house in order to afford the, afford the apple. Uh, but in the center of our web, to make that whole thing function uh, is fossil fuel or money. They're kind of interchangeable. They sort of co-occupy that spot. And so we have fossil fuel and money sitting where you would see ceremony in a, in a traditional culture. And I, I, at first I was like, well, you know, but, you know, fossil fuels and money, those are just, those are just tools. But in some ways they're really not. And, and we kind of touched on this earlier uh, where we are sort of in a process right now of wedding our concepts of ceremony and religion with money and with fossil fuel. And so this sort of evangelical argument uh, that that Scott Pruitt um, threw out um, back in October about these natural resources are our God-given right. We should be able to do with them as we see fit. Um, 
they, we've got the uh, governor of Oklahoma declaring oil field prayer day back in 2016. I don't think we as a culture are comfortable, or maybe even as a species, are comfortable not having some kind of ceremony at the center. And if we have something else in the center, we try to imbue it with ceremonial aspects. That may so, be, but most I think many people listening will find it quite troublesome that we have turned fossil fuels into some sort of deity that we need to worship. It certainly um, makes our lifestyle much easier, but as far as imbuing it with any kind of religious connotation, that seems to me to be craven on the part of Scott Pruitt to be invoking religion when it comes to protecting what really is money going into these campaigns to support politicians who then hire people like Scott Pruitt to right. protect them. I mean, that's right. the web we're talking about, is the web of campaign finance influence that protects the fossil fuel industry from changing quickly enough to protect us, the biosphere. That's the web I'm interested in breaking the connection between politicians and the fossil fuel industry. And, uh, and doesn't that, by the way, violate the, I think, first commandment or something? Thou shalt have no <laughs> gods before me. Don't worry. Yeah, I think it's a lot more complex than that. Uh, you know, so I, mean, I just wanted to sort of touch on that same thing with money. The prosperity gospel is the same thing. I mean, we have folks that are trying to wed uh, the uh, making of money and wealth with um, a s sort of blessings by God and it being a a, um, uh, a spiritual quest to make to make money. Well, I am looking uh, at a dollar bill that says, in God we trust. God we, well, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I kind of use that image sometimes for sort of a cheap shot in my, my presentations. But uh, you know, I think I was talking with Rachel a little bit about this yesterday. You know, I want to put it, I want to put the flip side on it, which is I think we as a people are not comfortable uh, not having something more meaningful in the center governing our decision-making process. And so it isn't it isn't just uh, folks preying on that uh, from the say the fossil fuel industry. It's our it's our desire for it. Yeah, it's it makes us quite it. vulnerable, and it's probably why incidences of isolation and depression are going up, is that people have been sold a bill of goods that if they acquire lots and lots of money and, and uh, you know, lots of objects, and they don't have social connections, that it will fill in for that. And we know right. that human beings are social creatures. You know that being an anthropologist. Archaeologists. We're speaking with Mike Newland on Planet Watch. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman with Joe Jordan, and if, we're having an interesting discussion here. If you want to uh, email us a question for Mike, uh, remember radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. Do it before the end of the interview because often people will think of these questions at the end, and maybe some of our interns who are sitting silently listening have a question, so just throw your hand up in the air. There's three people besides Joe and I in the studio. We have Sanaya, Maya, and Tommy that are all um, in their 20s. And, you know, this world and what we're talking about are going to affect their futures even more than they're affecting ours. And so I think they it would be lovely if they would jump in on this conversation. A couple issues I want to make sure we get to in the remaining, you know, 15 minutes or whatever we have to talk with Mike uh, is the effect of uh, Native American archaeological sites of things like sea level rise and other effects of climate chaos. And then also just maybe a story or two from this kind of pioneering work you've been involved with using our dog friends to uh, sure. sniff out uh, ashes among the ashes. Sure. Well... You know, uh, boy, in terms of, <clears throat> excuse me, climate change and sea level rise, uh, <clears throat> we as a species are about to lose our maritime heritage. You know, every place that we have launched a boat in the water in the last 10,000 years is about to get submerged. And the process of, of wave action and inundation and storm surge and everything is, is going to, certainly in California, destroy most of those sites. Um, it's a very dynamic coastline. Uh, once it's in the water, it tends not to survive that well, except for some select locations. So uh, I have a lot of concerns, and I know that my tribal partners have a lot of concerns about their sites being destroyed. Um, 
uh, the, the fires, uh, and we've been working a lot with the sea level rise because in some ways that's the easiest for us to map out. We can sit there with a, you know, a GIS software and see what a seven-foot sea level rise would look like. The fires are trickier because, you know, as they go up to the, whole, the hills, uh, you've got slope instability, uh, loose soils, your vegetation is gone, your, your root structure is gone. And you could have hillside collapses that, you know, just wipe out the whole drainages. Well, we have had that drainages. down in Montecito. Yeah, yeah. We just saw that happening. Um, so what are the native tribes in general saying about moving sacred, you know, burial sites? Are they wanting to reinter their uh, ancestors and their archaeological sites elsewhere above sea level danger? Or are they just letting the erosion happen, saying that's... You know the way it goes. What what's the general consensus, or is there one at all? There isn't. It mm -hmm. depends entirely on the tribes, and uh, especially here in California, you know, we've got 80 different languages spoken in California. We have different uh, religious systems, different cultures uh, from one tribe to the next. So some are very concerned about it and and want uh, government protection of their sites. Some are keeping a close eye on their coastal sites, and when uh, human remains wash out, uh, they have teams to go out and recover those and rebury them in a safer place. Uh, some of them are doing nothing. Mm -hmm. And, and the federal, really federal, government the is, uh, federal government is required, I believe, to, if they ask them to, to repatriate those remains somewhere outside of the danger zone, if, uh, if requested, right? Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's really. I mean, this is another kind of an interesting interesting thing. So, for our standpoint, if it's federal land, there's something called the Section 110 of the National Historic Preservation Act, which uh, obligates the federal government to have a stewardship role on things that happen in their land, whether there's a project happening or not. It's just their ongoing stewardship responsibility. Mm. Now, of course, was written before any concept of climate change had really hit the books, and so. Now, what was sort of a kind of a uh, uh, not commonly invoked uh, law, a component of the law, is now really important because these impacts are happening everywhere. Yeah. And there's no budget for it. You know, they never would have thought that they would have had to do something like this. So the federal government, I think, all the agencies are still trying to figure out what, what their role is going to be in this. Some of these, you know, burials are coming out of state property. They're coming off of private land. The, the feds don't have any regulatory role in that. Uh, but the tribe needs to, you know, internally needs to think about what's our process for this to happen, no matter where it is. What are we going to do about it? Uh, and that's a tribal government and tribal elder discussion, I think. Are you worried that the information contained in these sites about how people lived thousands and thousands of years ago will be lost to science? Is that part of the worry as well? That well, I, yes, I, I think it is. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I want to throw a caveat in there in that uh, on behalf of the Society for California Archaeology, we've been looking for sites uh, that we think are going to get destroyed by climate change. And I will only work in areas where I have tribal approval and um, tribal cooperation if, if they're interested in looking for these sites. There have been some places where the tribes did not want folks to go out there looking for their sites or considering their scientific values, and I respect that. And science, in my mind, does not trump everything. Hmm. These sites have cultural values for, for the tribes that... Um, I think we have to sit down and discuss what's the best plan moving forward. You know, I'm hoping science has a seat at the table, but it's not the only seat. That's a good point. Well, well, shifting over to Joe's other question about, and this was on NPR not very long ago, mm -hmm. um, the story um, kind of is related, kind of, is related to climate change in that Santa Rosa had some of the worst fires rip through there that have ever been you know, recorded in, in a very right. off season. And now people are dealing with this really toxic Ash, and who would have thought that archaeologists like you would actually get involved in helping find people's cremains when um, all is said and done, instead of having them thrown into a landfill in a toxic waste dump where I guess a lot of that ash is going to go. So could you oh, yeah. uh, catch us up with that story and wh how, what your involvement was? Sure, yeah. And, um, <clears throat> I got a um, an email from a buddy of mine, Alex DiGiorgi. He uh, is... Uh, uh, is the uh, principal over at a company called uh, Alta, uh, Alta Archaeology in Santa Rosa. And uh, he's, he's a longtime friend of mine. And he said, hey, look, um, uh, I'm working with this dog team 
uh, to recover uh, cremations from these fire, these burn areas, and we're we're inundated, we're swamped. Um, I've never really seen anything like it. Can can you come help out? And so <clears throat> I volunteered uh, my time and, and was able to um, convince some of my staff and and uh, we sort of reached out to our broad network to go out and um, meet with the Institute of Canine Forensics folks. These guys are the real deal. I mean, they did 9-11. They did the Oklahoma City bombing. And these dogs, uh, they're used to going into big disaster sites and recovering, you know, bodies really out of them. Uh, but going in to a fire area to recover somebody that was cremated before the fire and having those ashes mixed in with the other ashes, it was, it was something new for him. It was new for us, too. Uh, and when I got out there and, and talked with Alex about it, uh, uh, it was a little overwhelming. The first day, I think we had 20 of them that we needed to do, and we had six teams going out to different houses. But we were um, surprisingly successful. Um, the ash is uh, the 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 ash is uh, um, it's kind of an unusual color. Uh, the human remains, and I don't know whether it's a function of the second burning that they go through, but they're almost salmon pink colored uh, most of the time. And uh, they still have bits of bone and um, teeth and, and other things that you would expect in a cremation, which is what we're used to looking for. But because they are mixed in with the ash, it's really hard to sort out to get to them. And that's where the dogs come in. Uh, they, they've been remarkable in getting, uh, getting to the ash. Uh, they can detect it uh, buried under, you know, under walls, under brick, uh, under piles of other burnt stuff from the house. These houses are completely destroyed. I mean, you can have a one- or two-story house reduced to six inches of ash and rubble. And let's just be clear to clarify, these are people, um, not the people who died in the fires, but these were no, people yeah. who are holding their loved one's remains in the house right. and that right. they got burned for a second yeah, time. So the, yeah, the people were cremated twice, you could say. Doubly, yeah, well, doubly. yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, and uh, one of our, the questions that Alex and I have is, does that second fire, which in some cases is going to be hotter than the first fire that they had, does that second fire change... Uh, the way that those ashes look and their consistency. Uh, and so <clears throat> after we've done several volunteer weekends of this, and we've had, you know, probably almost 100% success rate at this, um, uh, we've realized that this is, this is a new industry for us. Mm. Um, it's, and we uh, just uh, have started to have conversations with the Army Corps of Engineers, who's been doing a lot of the contracting on the Tubbs fire up here, about uh, trying to get under contract with the, the, with the dogs uh, so that we can be uh, more responsive. Because I, I think we've done about 50 of these uh, for the Tubbs fire, but that was only word of mouth. Mm -hmm. And I, I just I hate to think about how many other folks just, you know, just lost relatives. I mean, I have the, sun, the ashes of my son in my house, and mm. I would hate for that to happen. Yeah, you really don't want to think, you know, people either want to hold them in their homes or they want to release them to the ocean, but you really don't want to right. think of mom or grandma being in a landfill with other toxic no. waste. <laughs> no. Even though it is just their remains, it's still, our culture still holds those as sacred, so. Yeah, what really struck right. me from reading one of the articles about what you've been doing was how just uh, like eternally grateful the people were when you presented them with what you found. Uh, one woman, you know, like fell to her knees or something and sobbed. Right. And yeah. uh, it's kind of like, well, okay, this is obviously really important, even though it's no longer the living person. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Yeah, for a lot of people, that's all they've got. Yeah, it's uh, a memory. And some of these, some of these folks uh, that we've been working with, the the person who died did not die very long ago. Mm -hmm. So this is a this is a, a tragedy on top of tragedy, and uh, and that's really kind of another side of it is that um, you know archaeologists are not uh, they're not forensics people they're not uh, first responders we don't have a lot of experience interacting with somebody that's been through serious trauma.
Yeah, you usually and, deal with people who've been dead for thousands and thousands yeah, of years. Yeah, I, I, I like to tell folks that we don't, you know, we love people. We just don't want to talk to them. We just want to go to their stuff. <laughs> you look at you look through their stuff and their bones, right? That's what yeah. We just want to, yeah, and uh, so to working with uh, modern uh, folks, and, and we had that experience working with tribes, but it's very rare for the tribal person to actually know the name of the person that we're removing. Mm-hmm. And so to actually have immediate family members there who have a memory of this person is just uh, it's something that I don't think we were prepared for. And uh, we've, we've had a lot of debriefings afterwards mm-hmm. just trying to process. Sure, sure. What a different different thing that you were trained to be an archaeologist. Um, right. Well, if, unless Joe has some final questions, uh, um, we're going to thank you very much for being our guest. This has been a wide-ranging and interesting conversation for us to have with an archaeologist for the first time, just hearing about what the world looks like from your perspective. has been really un- illuminating. Well, any last thoughts from you, Mike, uh, about uh, you know this whole field and maybe what's what's next for you in your work and your associates? Well, uh, we're we're working here to try to get uh, archaeology really um, embedded more into the, the the climate change uh, resiliency and preparation process because, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, these sites are all going to go away. They're all going to go in the ocean. And I think we know how this is going to go. The, it's going to have to be declared an emergency response, and, and the environmental laws that would help protect these sites are just going to have to get waived. So we have a very limited time to get out in front of it. Well, we hope, uh, uh, hope you do and wish you luck in that, and I hope you keep in touch with us about future projects. Thanks so much for great. being hey, a guest. Thanks so much. Yeah. All right, you bet. Bye-bye. This has been Planet Watch. We continue on with our uh, phenomenon section. And I think we had a quiz last time that you were supposed to catch us up on. Do you remember mm, that? Well, let's see. Uh, <laughs> let me try to remember. While I'm thinking, uh, interesting juxtaposition there of two sort of opposite kind of things, fire and water. You know, talking about everything <clears throat> going underwater and getting taken over, overtaken by the oceans, uh, and then these intense fires. And, of course, <laughs> the relevance of what we were just saying is that, uh, well, you know, there's that Robert Frost poem. <laughs> some say the world will end in fire. Some say ice. Uh, well, okay, which way are we headed? Maybe some of both. But um, <clears throat> I'm reminded of a quote. I think it was Emma Goldman, which is, pray for the dead and fight like hell for the living. <laughs> <laughs> right now, there's, there's wisdom for you. <laughs> and we want to make sure we preserve our archaeological history and at the same time that we have a history in the future to preserve, if that mm-hmm. makes any sense at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this quiz, let me see. I am, you stumped me there, just what I even <laughs> posed. Does anybody in the room, anybody out there remember what quiz I posed last week? I, I don't know if I did, for sure. Well, now you have to come up with a new one. All of our shows are available as a podcast, you know, or just, you can, they're all archived at uh, a couple different websites. Um, but let's see. And, we're, uh, and they're archived at planetwatchradio.com. Yes, planetwatchradio.com to get all of our most recent shows anyway and also to subscribe to the podcast. I was looking at the map of where we're heard now and it's kind of all over the world. Uh, and we got several stations in this country. Um, <clears throat> let's see. One thing I got to tell you folks about is that... Um, the brightest star in the sky, the one that looks the brightest, okay, it's actually not. If you had all the stars at the same distance, you know, this one would not be the brightest. Just like the sun, okay, the sun is really the brightest star in the sky, but it's, it's really a pipsqueak compared to other stars if you, to, if you were to put them all at the same distance, okay. <clears throat> but the one that looks the brightest is the dog star, Sirius, S-I-R-I-U-S, and it's just blazing, brilliant blue and white kind of rising in the southeast in the early evening these days and uh, or in the northeast if you're in the southern hemisphere and it's lined up with the three stars in a row in Orion's belt but for the first time in all my years of being interested in astronomy and loving the sky this week I came upon something about that name Sirius and by the way when you tell people about that star Sirius they, everybody always says are you serious I think I said that last week but anyway the name it comes from, uh, the root of it is, uh, it, it looks hot, right? It's really bright. It's hot. It's, it's a word for to scorch. And it's like sear. It's a word whose root is related to the word to sear. You know, like searing memory or uh, searing heat. Uh, you know, like seared uh, 
you know, Swordfish. tuna or something, albacore. Pan seared. So this, that star is searing hot looking. So there he goes, serious. That's kind of cool. Hey, I wanted uh, to ask you about something, Joe. Okay. Um, there's a new study out of NASA that says that... Um, Two lunar missions found evidence that the moon's water is widely distributed across the surface. I didn't even know there was water on the moon. Well, we've kind of discovered in recent years uh, a, a section of kind of permanent ice at uh, at least one of the poles of the moon, which is dark uh, most of the time or a good bit of the time. And now it's, they're saying it's all over it's the... It's all over the moon. Yeah. So the question is at what depth? Yeah, they said <laughs> must it's be. not particularly accessible, but if it were to be, it could um, help future lunar missions uh, get some drinking water if they were there for a long period of time. You have to drill for water. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I have to... Uh, you got to send me that story and I'll take I'll a look at it. I'll do that. I'll put it on our Facebook page. So. <laughs> hey, there you go. Send it to everybody. <laughs> Now, I got a big announcement for you, uh, a wonderful thing. Not only did we already have Venus Day, and it's just getting brighter and more prominent in the evening sky now. Every evening you can see it higher and brighter in the western sky after sunset, maybe by 15 minutes after the sun goes down. You can see it, and it'll be the only thing out there for quite a while. But it's about to be joined by another planet, only for a very short time fleeting time that should give you a hint as to what this other planet is you only see it darting in and out on both sides of the sun and here's the ultimate hint it's the only other planet besides venus that's even closer to the sun <laughs> it's within that realm so what's the what's the innermost planet starts with an m <laughs> and the chemical symbol for it is hg <laughs> that must be some latin word i don't know where that symbol comes from hg is mercury and when i was a kid by the way maybe even rachel i don't know when i was a kid it's this is total anathema and horror these days no 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 never never touch mercury don't have anything to do with mercury but we used to play with it i mean maybe that's responsible oh, i remember for <laughs> my sister breaking open a thermometer and going look you can these blobs of mercury will come together and apart and they'll like roll around on yeah, your palm it was really probably cool. a bad idea huh? yeah, it's We're supposed to be poison. a bad idea i mean it's probably mercury responsible poison. for why i'm however i am but anyway <laughs> uh you could roll this it looked like liquid you know molten metal you could just roll it around on your hand but it was cool i mean literally cool well, anyway so the planet mercury you only see it maybe a couple weeks a year, a couple, you know, a week or two uh, after sunset, uh, and a few months later, maybe a week or two before sunrise. Uh, at the end of this coming week, March 2nd and 3rd, Venus and Mercury will be quite close together. They will appear quite close together in the sky. Of course, Mercury will be much farther, or actually, no, <laughs> Mercury will be closer to us because it's on our. Well, they're both on the other side of the sun, but, but Mercury's the closer one to us than Venus, which is way out there beyond the sun. So, uh, but anyway, they're going to, when you look sideways or as they crisscross each other in the sky, they're going to appear quite close together towards the end of this week. So keep an eye out for Mercury because you won't see it anymore after another week or two. I have a fun tidbit I heard a story about I'd like to share. Um, I don't know if you guys heard this, but it turns out they think Neanderthals uh, were the ones that made the earliest cave paintings. And that they found shells that were like 150,000 years earlier than Cro-Magnon um, with paintings on them. So they were capable of representational thought. So any next time someone calls you a Neanderthal, say thank you. That means I'm the next Picasso. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, they were something like humans, you know, humanoid kinds of creatures, just maybe not as nice and or smart well i don't know about that they were they were they had pigments and they made art uh, it was sixty four thousand years ago so next time you think you invented painting or you know <laughs> digital art is great look at this it's been around for sixty four thousand years there were shell beads that were painted with animal figures how about hmm. that? Okay, that's interesting news, and it's kind of of an archaeological nature, in fact. Yes, so um, it's fitting <clears throat> with our recent guest. I thought that was an interesting... Here's another really silly story that I heard. I listened to a lot of science news. Mm -hmm. um, they have discovered that the mold <laughs> that creates athlete's foot between your toes has lost its ability to sexually reproduce. Now, that might seem like no more athlete's foot ever again because, gosh and golly, they gave up on life. You know, <laughs> any organism that 
used to reproduce sexually and doesn't anymore tends to die out, right? So we can throw away all that powdery and stuff that we use on our toes. But it turns out it learned how to clone itself. So that's oh. the bad news. <laughs> so, mm, so it found a way. Yeah. So the good news was it seemed to have given up on life, maybe because we put too much desitin on it or some A&D ointment. But no, it turns out it's only just gotten around us. And mm-hmm. instead of like giving up on life, evolutionarily speaking, it, it found Cle- a new way. Clever little fungi. <laughs> Yes. Uh, Hey, returning to Venus, I just wanted to say that a preview of coming attractions. Not only is it going to be getting brighter and higher in the evening sky each evening, uh, but towards the end of summer, it's going to be so bright that, A, you can see it in broad daylight. I mean, I could show it to you at, you know, 1.30 in the afternoon. It'll look like a white star hanging in the blue sky. And at night, if you get thee to a dark place without artificial lights and stuff, and you don't have a moon in the sky, you will be able to see your shadow cast by Venus. Anybody ever experienced that or thought that that was possible? So i uh, tell you what, uh, get a hold of me, radioplanetwatch at gmail.com, and you, you can hire me to come and show a whole party full of people uh, Venus in the broad daylight and or your shadows cast by Venus at night. Or I might even do it for free if you're good. Or if you um, get on our Patreon. Yeah, yeah, if you get on Patreon. Patreon account. We have a Patreon account. Go to patreon.com. And if you look up Planet Watch, um, you can join as a supporter in it. $2 a month, you'll get our podcast first before anybody else. Uh, 2 to $5. $10, you can suggest guests and have a cameo appearance on the show. And I think it's like $400 periods. Uh, you can have Joe come to your party if you're within driving distance of Santa Cruz County, California. Um, he will come visit you, and uh, I will do a campfire a guitar night uh, for the same amount. So for those of you interested in supporting Planet Watch's expansion into the whole planet, we, are, we have an empire we're expanding into other states. Um, that's one great way to do it because it'll help us uh, market to other and that, stations. And that's spelled, by the way, Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And a special thank so. you goes out to all the people so far who have signed up on that account. You're helping us get out to other stations. We have some great guests lined up for next week. We want to thank you. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman along with Joe Jordan, and this is Planet Watch. And uh, just want to say Sanaya has been our uh, mentee slash intern for the last uh, X months, and today's her last day here, at least for the time being. So thanks to and farewell to Sanaya. Thanks so much for having me. It was wonderful. It's been great and, to have you. Come back again soon. keep an eye on the sky. This is Joe Jordan. Thanks to everybody, and uh, see you next week. We'll be right back next week. Thank you.